Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Hello, Utah Street! Five, four, three, two, one. From inside our two-bedroom apartment in downtown Baltimore, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano and Brendan Mortensen here with you as always on the 14th, 15th cloudiest day in a consecutive day in Baltimore. Yeah, um, it has just been gray. Yeah, April showers is, is what they say, and April showers bring April rainouts. Is also what they say. That is and what they seven say. Seven inning double headers. Yeah, they actually go to eight innings and make things confusing for all parties involved. Yeah, as was the case yesterday. Orioles splitting a double header with the Seattle Mariners, winning Game Two, losing Game One. But the second game was the first home win of the season for the Orioles, uh, and it was an exciting one. Ramon Urias totally redeemed himself for Sunday's bizarre error. Whew. Which at this point, which a, a, up until last night was probably the most notable thing he had done so far in the season. Unfortunately, <laughs> it was. I mean, it's true, but yeah. you didn't have to point it out. Well, and he also hit it a home run yesterday, two run home run in game one. So he is uh, quietly turning things around. Yeah, uh, good stuff from Ramon Urias. We're going to talk a little bit about those two games yesterday. We're going to talk about Cedric Mullins's. Absolute dominance. That is AL MVP Cedric Mullins. I mean, I'm, I'm tempted to just do the entire podcast about Cedric Mullins. Because we could. That's how good he has been. Yeah. Um, we're also going to talk about uh, the bullpen, what we have seen from some members in the bullpen, and the rotation as well, whether there needs to be some reconfiguring of the Orioles' rotation over the next couple weeks. But first, Brendan, contrary to popular belief, this podcast actually has some journalistic standards. And that, that cannot be true. Contrary to popular belief, yeah, to the belief of my co-host, and part of that includes trying to get facts and the truth on all of our podcasts. Okay, sure, truth matters. And uh, I was listening to last week's podcast, and I realized, boy, did I say a lot of things that were just incorrect. I mean, I was just off the top of my head. It it yeah. didn't help that I was also running the you know the live stream board here. Yeah, and sure, let's make excuses. Yeah, I'm gonna make excuses. You but are, I, but look, I'm also t- owning up the fact that uh, you know I said some things that were just incorrect. Yeah. A few factual statistical errors I got wrong along the way, and nothing bothers me more than when I'm listening to a podcast and I know that what the the host is saying is incorrect. So I'm sure that a few of our listeners had that experience with the yeah. podcast last week. So I thought now would be a good time to introduce a new segment. That let's hope it's not recurring. I, because let's I hope certainly I, hope not. I get the information actually correct. But that would be great. It I, would be a nice change of pace for I, you to say things that are correct. <laughs> and that makes sense. That's fair. Uh, so <laughs> I don't have a name for this segment, but essentially the gist of it is I'm going to read out the things that were incorrect about the things that I said last week. I think correct the errors. It it's funny to me that pretty much every week we come on the podcast. We talk about at least at some point how we were incorrect about how our takes were bad or the, about yeah. just a multitude of ways that we were incorrect in some way, shape, well, or form. And also, you know, the, the professionalism of this podcast, you know, right. I'm trying, I'm doing my part here. Unwavering, truly. To boost the professionalism of this podcast. Therefore. Yeah, I've always said that about you. 
incredibly professional. Yes. Um, that is the one thing that I think the listeners of the podcast yeah. would agree on. I, uh, yeah. Exactly. Is that this is the most professional. I, it's why I wear a suit and tie. Podcast if you're not watching uh, on video, I am wearing a suit and tie. It's a tux. Uh, and if you are watching on video, you know that that's a lie. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I don't have a name for this segment. Okay. But Good I'm going to throw out some names for you, Brendan. Do you okay. want to tell me if you like any of these? Uh, sure. I'm going to hate them. The Oopsials. Nope. Hate that. Uh, Paul Aculpa. Like Maya Culpa, but with my name. Yep, hate that. How about the Baltimore Blunders? Slightly better than the other two, but still hate it. I think we're going with Baltimore. How about be more blunders? Be less blunders. No, you keep rolling through them in your head. Be fewer would be the correct. Yeah. Baltimore Blunders is what I think we're going with. I guess we're going with it. Do you want to roll the music? Yeah, let's play the music. All right, we got the music rolling. Sounds good. I'm pretending as if I can hear the music, which is running. <laughs> you cannot. Uh, I've been waiting to use this music for quite a while. All yeah. right, let me read out some things that I said incorrectly. <clears throat> I called Freddie Galvis uh, another switch hitter, implying that Cedric Mullins is still a switch hitter, which he is not. Yep. I said John Means used his curveball less in his first start of the season. He when used it, it more. He used it more. Yeah. And uh, you actually corrected me politely. A second after I said it on that podcast. I did. But I think I, I should bring it up now. I said DJ Stewart had an oblique injury in spring training. It was actually a hamstring injury. Uh, finally, I struggled to say how many innings Matt Harvey threw in his first start, which was four and two-thirds, even though you had just said it like five minutes before. I did. Which shows not just that I am incorrect, but that I don't listen to you, which we we, we knew did. this yeah, already. Exactly. Well, Paul, that was a great segment. <laughs> that wraps up our segments. This is what the people tune in for. Exactly. It, it is an editor's note on our last podcast. So yeah. Let's hope that... Well, uh, thank goodness I have never said anything incorrect well, on the look, podcast. You, the listener, can contribute to this segment by providing in our comments exactly all the things Please tell us the things, the things that, we, that are, we say that are wrong. That are just blatantly wrong. Yeah. All right. Well, should we get to the podcast itself? <laughs> Let's Brendan? get to baseball. Yeah. All right. We got to start with Cedric Mullins. We do have right? to. Because he's the best player in the world. I yeah. mean, he is he is absolutely dominating. Yeah. Um, look, small sample size. Don't care. Arguments aside. <laughs> it would be one thing if we went on this podcast after 11 games and he was hitting 300. And we used that as an example to say this guy is is turning the corner and, you know, this is something he can keep up for the entire year. The thing is, Brendan, he's hitting 442. That's pretty good. That's way better yeah. than 300. Through 11 games this year, he's hitting yeah. 442. He's got a homer. He's got six doubles. He leads all of baseball with hits with 19. He is, I think, second in baseball in doubles with six behind J.D. Martinez. He has been absolutely terrific. And we sometimes use a little bit of humor to talk about him because you have always been a stan of Cedric Mullins. That I have. And, you know, you you joked off the top about him being AL MVP, but in all seriousness, he has been by far the best player on the Orioles and one of the better best players in baseball right now, granted through 11 games. And the only reason that his stats aren't better is because... A lot of the guys at the bottom of the Orioles lineup just aren't getting on base, so Cedric Mullins really isn't driving anybody in. That's really the one area that you can look at and say Cedric Mullins isn't really doing that all that well, and that's RBIs. But yeah. Cedric Mullins has been unbelievable at the plate. I mean, his approach, it doesn't look completely different. It looks similar to how it looked when he was on a hot stretch at the end of last season, 
But you're almost surprised at this point when Cedric Mullins doesn't make good contact yeah. on a ball. Yeah. I mean, even yesterday, uh, I think it was in, I guess, in, in both games of that doubleheader, even when he was making outs, they were hard hit balls. Yeah. I mean, it is rare that he goes up to the plate and does not make good contact. Yeah. Uh, he is hitting balls incredibly well. I'm just amazed by the contact rate that he has had. Um, and the 442 average speaks to that. And it, it, it's solid contact, like we said. He's not hitting dribblers to the infield and beating a lot of these balls out. He still has that potential to drop down a bun if he needs to, to, you know, beat out an infield hit. But a lot of these are balls that are hit on a rope to the yep. outfield. Uh, he has been confident at the plate, I think you could say. I mean, I, I don't know if it's all that noticeable, the, the difference, like you said, in his approach. But the results are way, way higher than I expected them to be at this point in the season. Yeah, and he's not even bunting for base hits at this point. No. I mean, that's what he was doing last year when you were trying to get Cedric Mullins on base because, obviously, he's a threat on the base paths. But, like, he's in the 58th percentile for exit velocity, according to Sackcast, And for a guy that is not a power hitter to be in the, a decent percentile for exit velocity... That's huge yeah. because he is at the top of the lineup, obviously. He's getting on base. He's hitting a lot of doubles. He's hitting ropes down the line. I mean, he has been far and away the best player on the yeah. Orioles. And, and what makes it so exciting, especially with Cedric Mullins, is his hitting ability is not even his best tool. It is his fielding and his speed on the base pass, like we've said. Uh, he did get caught stealing yesterday, but he's going to be a threat on the base pass right. all season. And his fielding is going to be above average in center field. It hasn't been perfect so far this year. And part of that, I think, is just due to the fact that it's Oriole Park, Camden Yards. They haven't played in a while. He's getting back into things. Um, but his hitting is not his best tool. And the fact that it has developed up until this point makes him so much more of a complete player. And frankly, it puts him above a lot of the other outfield prospects that we've seen so far. I mean, Austin Hayes is still on the injured list. They're hoping they can get him back. But the more that Cedric Mullins plays like this, the more he is playing himself into a role on this team in the future. Yeah, I mean, he is solidly at this point the center fielder of the future, it looks like. Because I, that's that's what it looked like at least a few years ago. Right. And then with all of the demotions that he had along the way, the struggles at the major league level, he was like talked himself out of that conversation. And now... He's solidly back in it, at I least. mean, probably the only knock that you can have on Cedric Mullins as your center fielder of the future is that he doesn't have a terribly strong arm. That's about the yeah. only thing I can think of. He doesn't have a terribly strong arm, and he's not going to hit for a ton of power. Yeah, but, but his, arm has got, his arm has also gotten better. His arm has gotten better, and you don't need him to hit no. for power at the top of the lineup. I yeah. mean, look at the middle of the Orioles lineup that really has not hit terribly well to start the season they are still benefiting greatly from having Cedric Mullins get on base so often at the top of the lineup. I mean, look at Michael Franco. He doesn't have a great batting average right now, but he has 12 RBIs. Yeah. And a lot of them are Cedric Mullins. Well, and you mentioned it, but the, you know, the fact that he is the one RBI is due yeah. to the fact that he's hitting leadoff. Your leadoff right. guy's not going to have a whole lot of RBIs, but also because Freddie Galvis is hitting ninth uh, this season. Yeah. We're going to get into Freddie Galvis' struggles, but Freddie has, is hitting 162. So Freddie is not getting on base and giving Cedric Mullins a chance to drive him in. So I think that yeah. one RBI is just on that solo homer. Yeah, Freddie Galvis is hitting 162. Rio Ruiz is hitting 125. Yeah. I mean, Ramon Urias has looked 
like an improvement maybe towards the bottom of the lineup, but it's really not a lot of people outside of Cedric Mullins are hitting the ball with any sort of efficiency. The yeah. second highest batting average, if you exclude DJ Stewart's 250 in 12 at-bats, the second highest batting average below Cedric Mullins at 442 is Pedro Severino at 241. Yeah. And batting average is not the end-all be-all. No, but... but- it's still not good. They're not. They're also not hitting a ton of homers, right? Um, and whether that's the D juice ball or whether that's just April weather, right? We don't know. Or whether well, that's he, just guys getting off to slow starts, right? And if you don't want to look at batting average, you can take a look at OPS, where Cedric Mullins has an OPS of almost one point two, and the second highest OPS is Michael Franco at six eighty five. Yeah, and he's also what's even more encouraging too about Cedric Mullins how he's hitting lefties. Yes, I mean he now. Again, tiny sample size has a better at batting average against left-handed pitchers right now than he does against righties, which is surprising considering throughout his career it's been the opposite, but he has been batting from the right side of the plate against lefties up until 2021. He's batting from the left side for the first time in numerous years against lefties, and he's crushing them. He's hitting, what, 467 in 17 plate appearances against left-handed pitchers. Yeah. That is incredibly encouraging. Yeah, and and Mullins talked about it. I mean, it must be so nice to not have to focus on two hitting yeah, approaches. Two, two different swings. Two different swings, two different approaches at the plate. He can just focus on hitting left-handed, which maybe that was the key all along yeah. to unlocking this version of Cedric Mullins. Obviously, he's not going to hit 442 for the entire season, but even if he hits somewhere in the 300 range, that would be incredibly be awesome. encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's all you can hope for at this right. point. Um, even with the strong start or strong finish, rather that he had to twenty twenty, I don't think any of us were expecting this kind of consistent play no. from Cedric Mullins Not at, at all. the plate. It and it has been a godsend too for Brandon Hyde because I don't know where this lineup would be, what this team's record would be, honestly, without Cedric Mullins at the top of the lineup. It would not be good considering how many. Things that Cedric Mullins has accounted for. I mean, he has accounted for seven runs. He is getting most of the base hits. He's getting on base. So Cedric Mullins, we talked about it before the season too. When you were looking at the crowded outfield picture for the Orioles, we were talking about where guys like Ryan McKenna, Yusniel Diaz might fit in. Cedric Mullins and Austin Hayes were kind of in a rotational battle for center field. We thought that Cedric Mullins might be the fourth outfielder. Yeah, if it came down to it, because you would have Austin Hayes in center, Ryan Mountcastle in left, and Anthony Santander in right, and Cedric Mullins might be the odd man out. Looks like he's pushing people to the odd man out at this point, because I don't see how you can take Cedric Mullins out of your everyday center field spot at this point. Yeah, and again, it is frustrating for Austin Hayes because his play has definitely kept him in the conversation for being a long-term fixture of this team going forward, but his injuries have really set him back. Right. Because other guys are taking advantage, like Cedric Mullins and like Ryan McKenna getting the call up. He has a chance to take advantage of of his opportunity here and push Austin Hayes to the outside. I, I don't think... I think when we see Austin Hayes and, and uh, healthy on the field, like we saw in the first series of the season, like we saw last year in that second half of the season, Austin Hayes is going to keep himself in that conversation. But it's just staying healthy. Well, I think the thing with Austin Hayes, and we'll talk about Ryan Mountcastle's defense in a little bit, if Austin Hayes is back in a starting role, I think it's left field at this point. 
Yeah. I think it's left field and the occasional center when Cedric Mullins needs an yeah, offense. No, you can't you can't take him out of the the, the lineup. No. You, you, uh, you know, guys are going to stay when you have a fixture of your lineup that is hitting 442 and is a the closest thing to a true leadoff hitter that you've had in numerous years, you're gonna keep him there. I think Austin Hayes will probably be in left, and then you move Ryan Mountcastle to DH and figure out what you do with DJ Stewart, would be my guess. Yeah. Because at this point, it, with less to do about Ryan Mountcastle's fielding left field, I think, it's just Cedric Mullins needs to be your fixture in center, and you need to figure out what you can do with Austin Hayes at yeah. that point. You can also bump Ryan McKenna back down to the alternate site right. and make DJ Stewart kind of your de facto... DH. Fourth outfielder, DH. Fourth, yeah, yeah, exactly. So there, there are different machinations that you can make, but right, none, not many of them involve taking Cedric Mullins out of center. I field. don't think any of them do. Yeah. yeah, unless you're giving him a day off. Right. Um, speaking of, we we talked about the the team's record. Let's throw that standings graphic up there, Brendan, because the AL yeah. East is as bizarre looking as you can get. Yeah. The Boston Red Sox lead the AL East, and then it is a four-way tie for either second or last in the AL East, depending on how you look at it, between the Orioles, the Yankees, the Rays, and the Blue Jays. All four of those teams are five and six. And by the way, the Red Sox record is seven and three. Those three losses coming to the Orioles in the first three games of the season. Yeah, I mean, it's the, strange looking. If the Red Sox have won seven in a row. They look good. If their pitching can hold up, obviously, we know the lineup is dangerous. I thought that the middle of the standings would kind of be a mess. I thought it would be the Red Sox, Rays, and Blue Jays kind of fighting for the middle of that lineup. The Yankees do not look great at five and six. Their pitching has not been good. Their offense has been non-existent. It's a weird, weird standings. But we're throwing this graphic up and talking about it now because this may be our last opportunity. (laughs) We see (laughs) it. At some point. Yeah. Things can change in a hurry. Um but the Orioles right now are staying with those other teams. Well, look, there's this series against the Mariners. There's an upcoming series against the Rangers this weekend. Yeah. Orioles have a chance to pick up some games in those series. The Rangers are not a very good team. The Mariners are an average team. I think the Orioles can pick up some wins. Well, it's also nice that they are not having to face the Yankees and Red Sox. Yes. They did the first week plus of the season. I mean, those are, you know, Red Sox are a good team, as we know now. Yeah. And, uh, well, I think they're going to at least be a good team this season. If the at pitching least, can hold uh, up. Uh, yeah, yeah, about 500 or above. Right. Uh, and, and the Yankees know, will pick it up. The Yankees will pick it up, exactly. But it's going to be tough getting those. That, it might be a scrappy A at least. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Um, all right. Should we talk? You just teased it about Ryan Mountcastle. Do you want to talk about his defense? Let's talk about his defense. It's been a hot topic. Yeah. In the city of Baltimore recently uh, because... Austin Hayes gets injured. That kind of opens up that spot in the outfield. They brought up Ryan McKenna, but McKenna has been in and out of the lineup, mostly out of the lineup, mostly just kind of used as a defensive replacement late in games or a uh, pinch runner at times. So they are trying Ryan Mountcastle back in left field for the time being on, uh, you know, some nights, not all nights. And the results have not been great, Brendan. Yeah. Uh, he has played five games now in left field. He's got negative three defensive runs saved, which I don't need to tell you is not a good pace if you're negative three defensive runs saved, according to Fangraphs, through five games No, in a defensive position. Yeah. Uh, it was most noticeable, I'd say, during the home opener against the Red Sox. He One, he, he dove for a ball that Cedric Mullins actually dove for and caught, but he should have been backing up that ball. 
Yeah, that was a very confusing play. <laughs> it was yeah. a very confusing play, and it was a great dive, diving catch by Cedric Mullins uh, early on in that game. However, if it had gotten by Cedric Mullins, oh. that might have been a different story. Yeah. Uh, and then later on in the game, uh, looked like he was misjudged a fly ball in left uh, and let it drop for a hit, and ultimately that guy came around to score. Uh, he had... Uh, Christian Vasquez's ball. That was the Christian Vasquez ball. Uh, he was charged not with an error, but it was just a single by Franchi Cordero in right. left, which drove in a run. All kinds of bad stuff from, from Ryan Mountcastle in the field. Yeah, errors are weird because it wasn't an error because he just didn't get there. Yeah. He just mis- misjudged the ball. Uh, if you're a frequent listener of the Mass and All Access podcast, you know that my take for forever has been uh, put Ryan Mountcastle at either first base or DH and leave him there. I know I'm a sucker for defense, and that is kind of where I value Ryan Mountcastle most because you need his bat in the lineup, obviously, even though he's been struggling so far to start the season. He doesn't look good. in le- He doesn't look comfortable. No. And it's interesting because he's not a bad athlete. He's pretty quick. He's obviously a converted shortstop. He knows how to play defense. He just doesn't look comfortable in left field. And it's kind of weird because there's not really an expert. Like sometimes if there's a power hitter, you try to hide him in a corner outfield and you say, well, he's on the team for being a power hitter. And hopefully he just doesn't make too many mistakes in the outfield. Ryan, Ryan Mountcastle is a good athlete. He's just not great in left field. And maybe that will come with time, but I don't know. I guess it's a different situation right now when you have a hurt Austin Hayes where he's not in the lineup and Ryan McKenna hasn't really shown you enough offensively to say, hey, I should be starting left field. Yeah. Obviously, McKenna would be an upgrade defensively in left. But Mountcastle, you've got to keep in the lineup at this point. But honestly, it's a toss-up between would you rather have Mountcastle in the field or would you rather have DJ Stewart? DJ Stewart, you kind of know what you have. And I think with Mountcastle, they're just still trying to figure it out. Yeah, DJ Stewart making a nice sliding grab up against the wall in the yeah. first game of that doubleheader yesterday. I think Rock Cabaco on MassInSports.com made an interesting comparison by bringing up the fact that Johnny Oates, former Orioles manager, used to like to stick Brady Anderson in left, even though he was the best outfield defender. Uh, at the, in the his, the early days of Anderson's career because Oates believed that at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, the best outfield defender should be in left because that is a short wall in left. You have a lot of fans that could potentially reach over, grab a ball, or obstruct your path. The angles are weird in the left field corner. It's sometimes difficult to read the ball off the bat in left field, and center field is a, you know, requires maybe a little bit more range, but is easier to play than left field. That was Oates' belief, at least. Yeah. So, left field is difficult at Camden Yards. It is probably more difficult than, um, you know, a lot of other left fields around baseball, with the exception of maybe Fenway Park. Um, so, that could also be part of the struggles, and considering the fact that, you know, Mountcastle didn't really get these starts in left until they came home. You know, he didn't... It was it wasn't until... Um, you know, I think he started maybe one or two games in left at Yankee Stadium, but he didn't get any in Fenway, and now he comes home and and has got that weird angle in left and is trying to deal with that. So part of his struggles, I think you can attribute to that. But he has absolutely not looked comfortable um, in left, and I think that it's something that when you talk about uh, a, a winning team, a team that is going to be in contention, 
team that is going to hopefully make the playoffs at some point down the season. This would be a much bigger issue when you have yes. a guy starting in left who has negative three defensive runs saved in left. But that's not where the Orioles are in their team building phase, at least. Right. And it's kind of a a weird thing to say out loud. But at this point, you can afford a few games of mishaps in left field to try and find out if Ryan Mountcastle can be your left fielder defensively. Because obviously, if he can be, you have a lot more versatility. Because at this point, Trey Mancini has pretty much locked down that first base spot. I doubt Ryan Mountcastle gets much reps at, uh, at first base if... Maybe if Mancini goes to DH, but you don't want to be in a situation where Ryan Mountcastle and Trey Mancini are both either first base or DH, right? Because then you are limited in your use of DJ Stewart. You are limited in any other guys that you might want to put in that DH role. If you want to play Rio Ruiz and Michael Franco at the same time, any of those scenarios become incredibly limited. If you feel like you can't put Ryan Mountcastle in left and obviously the results have not been encouraging, but you can take a few weeks out of the season to try and find out if Mountcastle can be your left fielder because you would much rather find out now yeah. than a few years from now when you are trying to compete and contend and then you don't have to look back and say, oh, we don't know if Mountcastle can right. play left. You're, we it, didn't really find out. Yeah, your left fielder goes down the middle of the season. You need to see if right. Mount, And he's costing you games when in a you know season where you're trying to make the playoffs. Like the right. comparison that I made in my head was with the final game of that Yankee series up at Yankee Stadium. Game goes to extras. You have the automatic runner on second. Glaber Torres, shortstop for the New York Yankees, um, misses Jay Bruce at first (laughs) on a throw that ties the game. And a throwing error, runner comes home, would have gotten out of the inning. Orioles go on to win that game in, I think, 11 innings. That is a critical error, and you're going to see that all across the, uh, you know, you saw it all across, like, the New York Post and Daily News the next day because that cost the Yankees the game in a season where they are trying to not only win the AL East, but maybe win 100 games, make sure that they get one of the higher seeds when it comes to the postseason so that they can get home field advantage and make a run to the World Series. The Orioles are not in that spot. Ryan Mountcastle has made some plays that have cost the team some runs in games that they have lost but they're not trying to win 100 games and make a World Series run and every single game matters. It is more important that you find out what you have from these guys. They, they don't have to worry about costing, you know, they do have to worry about it. And Brandon Hyde is going to hate it. You know, if, if a defensive error costs runs, it's bad. It shouldn't happen. But if they, the team, if the young guys on the team learn from their mistakes, if they figure out what they can and can't do, if, they, if the organization gets a better idea of what they have in-house then that's not the worst thing in the world. Right. And like I was saying before, it is kind of confusing that Ryan Mountcastle is not great in left field because he is a good athlete and probably should be a better fielder than he is. But I suppose on the flip side of that, you could also say, okay, he probably should be a decent fielder in left field because he is a good athlete and all of those things. So maybe there is more room for improvement there. And let's not forget that Ryan Mountcastle has not played very many games in left field. Yeah. We talked about that. We will talk about that in a little bit when we talk about, you know, their expectations, Ryan Mountcastle and Dean Kramer. He has not played a lot of baseball games, and it is tough to judge Ryan Mountcastle with such a small sample size in left field. I think he needs more time. Yeah, he barely got his feet wet in left field in 2019 with the Norfolk Tides. Right. And then, you know, was at the alternate site for 30 ish game sample size a month and then gets called up and is yep. thrown in left at the big league level. And, and 
think you can attribute some of his offensive struggles early on in the season to that as well. The fact that, yeah, he's playing in his second season, but he's also playing in like his 50th game. Right. <laughs> so, you know, right. he, he, he has had one off season as a big leaguer technically, but keep in mind that he has barely had any games under his belt. So exactly. offensively, defensively, I think you can attribute that uh, to that as well. But I said, I've said about Mountcastle, I think still we're at the point where you play him in left field until he plays himself out of that spot. Yes. And he may do that eventually. And we may be approaching that with more errors or negative defensive run save that he has. However, I, in my mind, he has not played himself out of that spot just yet. I would agree. I think you have to give him a little bit more time. I know that it's kind of frustrating to see the growing pains with Ryan Mountcastle, but he needs to be in the lineup, obviously, even though he's been struggling a little bit to start the year. Over his last five, he's hitting 300. He's got six hits and three doubles. Yeah. So Ryan Mountcastle needs to be in your lineup. And this is the time, like you said, where we are going to figure out if Ryan Mountcastle can be a left fielder going forward. Yeah, exactly. All right. Other topics that we should hit. Uh, let's talk about the rotation. Yeah. Do you want to get into the struggles of some rotation members and, and the success of others? By the way, John Means yesterday, his worst start of the season gives up three runs in the first two innings, then settles down and retires 10 straight. Yeah. That was incredibly encouraging to see from John Means. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, he... Obviously, in those first two starts of the year, was dominant. That was awesome. But it was almost more encouraging to see him uh, struggle out of the gate like we saw him do, especially in the first half of 2020 last year. He really had some bad first innings. But to see him settle in and figure it out and finish with, um, you know, just three earned runs and retire 10 straight, I think is a, a good sign because no no pitcher is going to you know, have his best up stuff every single night. But on the nights where he didn't have have his best stuff, for him to not have a total implosion and leave it up to the bullpen to clean up a huge mess, I think is a actually a step forward. Yeah, and John Means, like you said, did not have his best stuff. He settled in after the first few innings, and it's the off-speed stuff that worked, and that's how he was able to settle in. When the changeup and slider are working for John Means, it makes his fastball approximately a million times more effective and it it kind of seems like this is what we should come to expect from John Means. I mean, he's not going to give up a lot of runs, it looks like. He's striking people out. He's got 14 strikeouts and 16 and two-thirds innings pitched so far. John Means is pretty solidly, one. Of, I think, honestly, one of the better pitchers in the American League. There aren't a ton of great pitchers in the AL right now, so that doesn't, you know, that's not a huge bar to cross. But John Means has looked fantastic so far yeah the rest of the starting pitching rotation not as good yeah not uh, as good especially Jorge Lopez I think his struggles have been very frustrating yes um, because this is a guy that earlier on in middle of spring training we were saying we don't really see a spot for Jorge Lopez on this team and we didn't really understand him making the rotation Obviously, the stuff is very good, and we've seen him have success in years past. However, he has mm. never been an above-average starter in his career. We, it, the, yeah. The, 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 stuff's, past, the stuff's not bad. The, the, the past success that I was mentioning, of course, was when he almost threw that no-hitter several years ago. But right. that was a long time ago, and that was one start. Yeah. It, look, we, are, we have some questionable takes, and uh, obviously you had your segment about the things you were wrong about on the last podcast we have been pretty adamant for a while that we didn't really get the Jorge Lopez experiment. Yeah. I think, I don't know how many more starts Brandon Hyde is going to give Jorge Lopez, 
I think the Lopez experiment is more or less, or should be, more or less wrapped up, especially when you have a guy like Adam Plutko in the bullpen who we know can be a starting pitcher who has looked way better than Jorge Lopez so far. Lopez, eight and two-thirds innings, 11 earned runs. That's good for an 11.42 ERA. Yeah, Nine strikeouts and four walks, and Plutko gave up his first runs of the season last night, two earned in eight and a third. Yeah, and it is different, obviously, being a long man out of the bullpen like Plutko has been, and and starting games because teams are going to be more prepared facing your starter most often. So, you know, Plutko does have that advantage. Um, Kept in probably a little bit too long last night and gives up that game-tying homer in the seventh inning yesterday. Uh, But before that, he had not given up any earned runs, as you mentioned, Brendan. And I think when Michael Elias traded for Adam Plutko, this probably was the plan all along. He had not gone more than two innings in an outing during spring training. So they were not comfortable starting him right out of the gate. And of course, they traded for him very late in spring training, like less than a week before the season started. Uh, But the hope was probably, if this guy pitches well out of the bullpen, we build up his innings, we can stick him in the rotation. And whose spot he was going to take in the rotation was TBD. And right now it looks like Jorge Lopez's because obviously means is a lock. Harvey has pitched well enough to stick in this rotation. Dean Kramer, still one of the younger guys. You want to see what you have in him. And Jorge Lopez's spot looks pretty much like the spot Plucko could take here. Yeah, Matt Harvey with a 5.59 ERA. He's looked a little bit better than that, I think. And even if Matt Harvey's ERA ends up somewhere in the mid to high fours, you're not looking for a ton out of Matt Harvey. That is decent number four, number five in the starting rotation at this point. Bruce Zimmerman has looked good. 12 innings, six earned. Again, I think he's looked a little bit better. Quality starts. I think he's looked a little bit better than a 4.5 ERA, I would say. So I think those two are pretty solid behind John Means. And then Dean Kramer has struggled, but you're not going to take him out of the rotation. I think the plan probably in the long term for Adam Pletko, Jorge Lopez, is you're probably just hoping that one of them can hold you over until Zach Lowther, Mike Bauman. Yeah, and people are actually commenting on our Facebook about uh, Mike Bauman coming up. And yeah. uh, he is probably a little bit further away than, um, you know, at this point than he probably would have been if 2020 had been a normal season. Maybe at this point in 2021, he would have already made his debut had 2020 been a normal season. But yeah. I think considering the last time we saw him was at double A for half a season. So same with Zach Lowther. We saw him at double A for an entire season, but these guys probably need a little bit more time to ramp themselves back up inning wise, but also make sure that they face enough batters to the point where the organization is comfortable throwing them in a major league game. Yeah. And I think, I think Plucko and Lopez, some combination of those two will do decently enough until either Zach Lowther or Mike Bauman gets a chance. And also, let's not forget, Keegan Aiken is still in the minors at this point, was options down at the beginning of the season in a pretty surprising move. If Jorge Lopez continues to struggle like this and maybe they don't want to throw Adam Plutko back into the starting rotation, you would have to think that even before Zach Lowther or Mike Bauman, let's not forget about Keegan Aiken. He is probably going to be the next call-up if the Orioles decide to go with another pitcher. Absolutely. But I think in the short term, I don't know how many more of these starts you can take from Jorge Lopez. I would agree. I I think the Jorge Lopez experiment was worth it because his stuff is not bad, but he has just not been able to put it together, and I don't think he's worth keeping in the starting rotation at this point. Yeah, I'd agree. And then in the bullpen, Brendan, we've seen some struggles 
from Sean Armstrong that I think were surprising uh, to start the season, considering he had a one eight something ERA last year. Yeah, and he has looked like a very different pitcher this year. He's appeared in four games, just two innings pitched over those four games. Twenty seven ERA at this point, giving up six earned runs. He has really struggled, and he started the season on the paternity list. So, you know, congratulations that he had his baby. He's probably still coming back uh, from that, and, and you know, um, that probably adds a level of things. But at this point, he has been uh, a, a big problem in that bullpen. Yes, I would agree with you that he has been a problem. I think I'm a little more lenient on bullpen guys than you are in terms of how quickly I'm pulling the plug. I mean, we saw Orioles fans were pretty upset with Cesar Valdez after that blown save. And that's your, you know, late 30-year-old reliever who has a, what is it, one four two ERA in five games. Yeah. So I, I think it's pretty easy to point the finger at bullpen guys. Obviously, Sean Armstrong has not been good, but it's only been four games. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm a little the- more... I have a little bit of faith in Sean Armstrong that he is going to turn it around because he was so good last year. And yeah. obviously it's a slow start to the season. Paul Fry did not start this season well at all no. in his first few games and has looked much better over the last few. So I'm hoping that Sean Armstrong has a similar turnaround to Paul Fry. I don't know if I'm ready to pull the plug just yet. I don't know if I'm ready to pull the plug just yet either. Yeah. But I think we saw Travis Lakins for the first time as the 27th man in the doubleheader yesterday, pitched one scoreless inning. He's several years younger. Travis Lakins is 27, turning 27 this year, and yeah. Sean Armstrong is 30. Um, that is, uh, you know, ultimately, I think that's going to be Lakins' spot. And yes. it's just, I, I think it might just be a matter of when. Um, we've And, of course, Lakins was, you know, optioned right back down to return to the alternate site yesterday after that game. But I think that we saw Lakins have a 2-8 ERA last year. Three years younger, I just think at some point, uh, similar to how Adam Plucko is ready to take a spot in the rotation, I think Lakins is ready to take a spot of somebody in the bullpen, whoever that struggles. And, and maybe it's Sean Armstrong if you know he continues to struggle, but maybe somebody else goes down with injury, maybe somebody else really struggles, and then you have to bring him up. But I think Lakins is kind of right there on the bubble of the roster. I would agree. And I think one thing to note with Sean Armstrong as well that's not unimportant is that we talked about Armstrong as a candidate to possibly get dealt at the trade deadline last year because he was pitching so well and possibly even get dealt before the season because we know that contenders always need bullpen arms. And I think if you're Mike Elias at this point, you don't want to give up on the possibility that Sean Armstrong could turn things around, possibly turn into a trade piece. Yeah. Even if you can't get a ton of great prospects for Sean Armstrong, you got a lot of good stuff from Michael Gibbons. You got a really good prospect from Miguel Castro, who's obviously younger and has more, you know, some more potential. But if Sean Armstrong is able to turn things around, maybe a contender needs a bullpen piece. Well, and I'll say this about the Cesar Valdez thing. Cesar Valdez is probably closer to getting them a good piece at the trade deadline yeah. than he is to being DFA'd. I mean, this yeah. guy has actually keep in mind all the context, the fact that he has barely pitched in the major leagues and is on the wrong side of not just 30, but 35. Right. And his stuff is generating a ton of swing and misses. And Dead yes, he had, he had a blown fa- save the other day and was bad, but that was one outing. Uh, yeah. It, you know, keep in mind, he had that good start to the season up at Fenway Park. So Dead Fish is working. I think Cesar Valdez is going to be fine long-term. Yeah, it is, like I said, very easy to get angry at bullpen arms, especially yes. this early on yeah. in the season. Let's give Sean Armstrong, at least See in my opinion... Picture. 
we need some more games out of Sean Armstrong to determine whether or not he should be uh, sticking around in this Orioles bullpen. Yeah. Um, one more thing I do want to touch on is Trey Mancini. Yeah. Uh, because uh, it has been unfortunate, the results that we have seen. He had the back, the back-to-back games with homers um, over the weekend, but for the most part, mostly struggles. I think, uh, what is he hitting now? One, 159. 159. So, yep. not great. Um, and that is frustrating to no one more than it is frustrating to Trey Mancini. Yes, and it is really obvious that Trey Mancini is incredibly frustrated with himself yeah. over how he has been hitting He's getting unlucky on a lot of balls, too. I mean, he has hit some balls with great exit velocity that are just getting hit right at people. His expected batting average, I'm not sure what it is off the top of my head. It is probably much higher than 159. But nobody is harder on Trey Mancini than than Trey Trey Mancini. Mancini. And I think, you know, I've said this. I'm sure a lot of Orioles fans would say the same thing. I think Trey Mancini is probably the only one who expected him to come back and be the exact same 2019 Trey Mancini that we saw that was one of the better hitters in the American League. Obviously, we were all hopeful, and I think Trey Mancini certainly still has that capability. I'm not gonna certainly not going to write him off after the first 11 games of the season, but just the fact that Trey Mancini is back playing baseball is incredible. Yeah. And we are, you know, it's so, it's so fun to watch Trey Mancini back in an Orioles uniform actually playing baseball. And the fact that he is hitting 159, yes, it's a little bit discouraging, but I think it's way more discouraging for Trey Mancini than it is for anybody else because obviously he holds himself to such a high expectation, but I don't think anybody was really holding him to that expectation, especially so early on in the season. Yeah, if you read that Dan Connolly athletic article during spring training about Trey Mancini's road to recovery, he told some stories from his minor league days when Trey Mancini punched the ceiling or the roof of his car so hard that he broke the mirror after a minor league game that he chucked his bat into the woods, I think after a Delmarva game. He has a history of being incredibly hard on himself. Yeah. Uh, And you do see the frustration from him after a strikeout in the dugout. Um, and Kevin Brown, I think, put it well on the broadcast yesterday where he said the entire world is rooting for Trey Mancini and we're just happy to see him back on the field. Yep. And, you know, all the sample size arguments that we used to uh, early on in the podcast about Cedric Mullins and others, you know, the same applies here. It is yeah. still a, a tiny sample size for Trey Mancini and also a guy that, like most power hitters, has proven to be pretty streaky in his career. His home runs tend to come in bunches for Trey Mancini. We've seen, uh, you know, uneven starts. We've seen stretches of a couple months at a time where he has looked very bad and a couple months where he's looked like the best hitter in baseball. So I expect it to turn around at some point for Trey Mancini, but even if it doesn't, it is still a win for him to be back on the field. And and that's... um, the, the best part of this, honestly, best storyline of the entire season. Yeah, well, and he's also tied for the team lead in home runs because yeah. he has two and Anthony Santander has two. He hasn't been, he has not been the worst hitter in the lineup by nope. any stretch, I don't think. I think you could argue that Freddie Galvis, Rio Ruiz have been worse in that lineup than Trey Mancini has been. And we know that Mancini is going to pick it up. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the um, expected stats from him from StatCast. Yeah. Slightly below average for average exit velocity, 41st percentile. Expected uh, weighted on base percentage, slightly below average. But hard hit percentage is 61%. Uh, 
Um, expecting batting average is slightly below average, above average expected slugging. So all this to say the, the counting stats will eventually catch up to yes. these. And he will prove to be at least an, a league average power hitter um, at some point during the season. And he is yeah. getting a little bit unlucky. Yes, he is getting, I, I would say, very unlucky because we have seen a lot of hard hit balls by Trey Mancini that just go to the wrong place. Yeah. And I think as the season goes on and Trey Mancini gets more comfortable with being back in the swing of things, he is going to improve. And yeah. he is going to, it, it's going to help the Orioles lineup as a whole as well because the middle of the Orioles lineup as a whole has not been fantastic. And I think once one of those guys starts to pick it up, we're seeing it with Ryan Mountcastle a little bit, the rest of the Orioles lineup will pick it up. Absolutely. Absolutely, Brendan. Anything else you want to touch on? Ooh, I just want to shout out touch on anything. I don't know. No, I just want to shout out Wesley for saying you guys don't know what you're talking about. Thank you. Yes, we also agree. We don't know what we're <laughs> talking about. We'll, we'll be the first to say that. Join the club. Uh, anything else? I think we just about nailed everything. I think we did. And, and the great part about is the about these podcasts, Brendan, is that in seven hours, it's totally irrelevant. All yeah. the stats that we just threw out there, all will be outdated. Probably. It's great. We'll come on next week. Because we'll there have are games that, every night. Yeah, we will have that unnamed Paul Mancano segment where he tells us all of the things that were incorrect from this time that we said. Yeah. Um, feel free to contribute to that, by the way, Brendan. If there's know. anything you think you said cor- incorrectly, I'm not going to throw you under the bus. I can't that. imagine I did. <laughs> according, according to Wesley, maybe I did. Yeah, there's probably some things in yeah. there. Uh, I think we should finally get Melanie Newman on the podcast. We've we, been delaying it for far too long. Yeah. We've had her on the podcast before, but I think we need her on to talk coffee. Yeah. And as someone who does not drink coffee, yeah. I'm at a severe disadvantage yeah. if we do this fantasy draft. Well, they have La Colombe, those little uh, lattes in, in the press box now, and uh, they are delicious. And it is huge news for not only Melanie Newman, but all the members of the Orioles press corps. Except for me. Except for you. Yeah. Because you're not going to enjoy yeah. that. Uh, let us know what we've said incorrectly, but also let us know if you have nice things to say about us in the comments. And Please. of course, rate, <laughs> review, subscribe, all that good stuff. Uh, at Brendan Morty is Brendan's Twitter handle. That's I am me. at Paul Mancano. Thanks, of course, to Hannah Broder behind the scenes. As always, we will be back in a week. Talk more Orioles baseball. Hopefully have Melanie Newman on. I should probably text her. You probably should. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. And we'll see you next time.